suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, thank you, Sir David. We're up to episode 229 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Normally there's three of us sitting around the table Mm. talking about the week's events, but Scott has something on and he's quite secretive about what it was, so we'll... We'll guess about what happens, <laughs> what's happened with Scott. But it's just you and me, 12th Man. Welcome, 12th Man. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, glad to be here, as always. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you as well. So, um, what are we going to talk about this week? Oh, uh, gee. <laughs> bit short of topics this week, are we? Well, it's a, we were a little bit short. I did, uh, like, there's been some newsy things, but yeah. nothing particularly meaty, like obviously Falao's bobbed his head up again and and George Pell. And, but really with these things, there wasn't a lot to say about it. So I thought that we might revisit a little bit of our Indigenous episode Ooh. and discuss a few Indigenous uh, items that we didn't get to back in episode 213. Mm-hmm. So deep breath, gird our loins and, uh, and we'll tackle that one. Okay. Yeah. Bravely. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better man to have with me than oh, you, 12th man. Yeah. It sort of um, brings to mind, you know, some of the cliches about going into outer space, you know, going yeah. where... Yeah, no man know, is dared to go before or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about Indigenous matters and race um, and sort of extrapolate a few things from episode 213. So, if you're listening to us for the first time or only you've recently started Know, watching our fair, po- listening to our fair podcast, it's uh, stop right now and go back to episode 213 because oh. you might say, Why are they talking about this? And why are they saying that? And why are they talking about this? And mm. a lot of it might have been covered in episode 213 that we're not going to go over. So, mm. um, so yeah, good idea if you haven't already, go to that episode. Do you know, I, I consider that episode to be one of our finest. Oh, do you? Mm. Oh, really? And in the actual statistics, it's performed one of the worst. So, it's only had about 345 downloads, and most mm. of them now are up to about 500. So, Probably because it was so racist. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, But then I've had some good the, – the sort of feedback we like where people have said, look, I didn't agree with everything you said, but it was thought-provoking and yeah. made me think about some things. And that's gold to mm. us. So, Indeed, yeah. And that's what we're about. We're yeah. about people thinking about stuff and discussing it without – you know, pre, mm. to, to, to rigid preconceptions, which yes, is that? Yes, So, or, or at least being able to shake the mm. preconceptions around a little bit and um, re-examine yeah. them. Although we were accused of holding too hard to preconceived ideas. Look, we all have them. So, yes. We, we're all subject to um, mm. confirmation bias to yes, some degree. indeed. And it's not easy to get alternative voices to come on. A, it's a time factor. Like, actually making, reaching out to people and getting them on is difficult. Uh, yeah. if, you're, if you tend to disagree with what we say and you live in the western suburbs of Brisbane and you want to join us on Tuesday nights, you're welcome to um, reach out to us and we're more than happy to have another voice to provide a contrary point of view. But it's not easy and it's not really 
you know, putting people on via Skype, it's hard. You'd sort of yeah. talk over the top of each other. It's it's hard yeah. to sort of have the same vibe. So it'd be good if somebody could come into the studio. So if you think you might disagree with us more than most and you live in the western suburbs of Brisbane and you're available, uh, reach out to us. Hmm. We should try and sort of play devil's advocate a bit more than what we do, but it's not easy. And like, so for example, on this episode that we're going to be doing about Indigenous matters, it, it just wouldn't make sense for, well, what we're going to be doing is quoting um, stuff from people who disagree with us and providing a response. So there's the alternative view. We may not get the actual voice of that person, but you'll get yeah. their idea. So, right. Well, who knows where we'll end up, what rabbit holes. Indeed. So we'll, we'll give it a go. Before we do, this is a sort of a warm-up, just to loosen our limbs a little bit, 12 men. <laughs> in, the, in the news this past week, we had Will I Am, who was on a Qantas plane and he felt he was hard, uh, hard done by, he by did. Qantas hostie. Yeah. And um, he then accused her of racism. Yeah, pretty readily accused her of racism, you know. Mm. I mean, that seemed to be one of his first responses to an altercation yes. that he had with her. Yes, so he's some black American rapper of some sort, I believe. Uh, black Eyed Peas, I think, is right. the group, isn't it, right. that he's with, which is a fairly well-established and popular American mm. band, yeah. Yeah, so on one side of the story is the hostie in Qantas saying that she was just trying to get his attention and he had noise cancelling earphones on mm. which didn't help and he didn't like the way it was handled and claimed mm. it was a racist act by her. So. He claimed she was very aggressive and that she mm. only directed her aggression at people of colour, as mm. he put it. Mm. So um, one of the things to come out of that was the Veronicas, mm. a couple of twins who are also Sing entertainers. Singers, yeah. Mm. They'd had an altercation on Qantas a couple of weeks ago. Mm. So as soon as they heard about the Will I Am thing, they mm. came out and said, "We support you, Will I Am." So mm. um, the twin sisters claimed that the flight attendant who clashed with Will I Am is the same woman who they previously clashed with. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, didn't and know that. Qantas said, "No, definitely, definitely not the a same different person. Yeah. Not the same one." So. Um, and they've demanded that it all be retracted. And the um, Veronica said that he shouldn't retract. That's Will I Am. Why should he? Um, we weren't there, but we support him. Yeah. Well, and he actually posted on Twitter, I believe, a photograph of the um, Qantas staffer mm. and the police officer who was sent to talk to him when the, when the plane landed. Yeah. So I mean, that's pretty um, provocative, isn't it? posting on social media, which goes potentially right around the globe, mm. a photograph of somebody who he had a disagreement with yeah. doing her job. Yeah, it is. So my thoughts on this are, have you seen the Veronicas? No, I've, I've off it's often crossed my mind I should have a listen to their music because I really have very little idea what it's like. So they look relatively white to me. Very white, I would have thought. And no. I looked up and they've got – on their father's side is Italian, yeah. Sicilian, and I don't know what their mother is. But oh, well, Sicilians are not really white, are mm. they? And they certainly look <laughs> – no, of course they are. They don't look black to me anyway. Nah. But, but really the fact that the same hostie – according to the Veronicas, mm -hmm. was rude and nasty to them and treated them poorly, should have been proof 
that the hostie is not racist. Indeed. Because Indeed. an equal opportunity sort of uh, yeah. person in that she's attacked, according to the Veronica story, mm. which is denied, mm. uh, white people as well as black people. Yeah. So really the Veronicas should have come out and said, well, that's the same hostie that uh, was mean to us and so it couldn't have been racism because look at us. That's right. No, they don't look in the slightest bit mm. um, non-European to me. yeah. So nobody picked that up, but that's what struck me was, well, she, could, she couldn't be racist even if your story was true because you're not obviously black. So It's just annoying that people mm. play the race card so yeah. readily, isn't it? Mm. Rather than trying to figure out, well, what's your problem? You know, what, what have I done wrong? Mm. No, it's straight up that the woman was racist. Yeah. So as we said last week about wokeness, uh, mm. it's very easy to just come out and say racist That's right. from the left. And, yeah. and everybody wonder. runs for cover, don't they? Yeah. I mean, even mm. uh, some people were saying, well, good on Qantas for standing up for the uh, staff because it seems like everybody just runs for cover, including big corporations quite often these mm. days, as soon mm. as they're accused of racism. Mm. So anyway. And not that we support racism, but it's just this whole, this whole thing around racism, like, you know, an accusation is as good as proof, isn't it, these days, almost? Mm, mm. So, yeah, all the more reason why to, instead of using it liberally, to use it only when really, really sure yeah. that somebody's being racist. Yeah. Anyway, that was that story, and I just found the Veronica's angle to it to be the interesting one for me. Mm. So we're going to talk a little bit about Marcia Langton in a moment, but mm-hmm. just as a sort of a warm-up on Marcia Langton mm-hmm. for, for listeners who aren't aware of Marcia Langton. She's, she she's a, an, a well-credentialed Aboriginal Indigenous spoke, spokeswoman mm-hmm. on various issues. Yeah. And um, back in 2012, in her fourth Boyer lecture, um, she attacked Professor Flannery a distinguished scientist, explorer and conservationist, for his Mm. comments in his quarterly essay because he had said, even under Labor governments with a strong green bent, national parks are not always safe. And he talked about how the Bligh government was de-gazetting areas, taking them out Mm. of the national park system and returning them back to traditional Aboriginal owners. And Marcia wasn't happy because it was sort of an allegation that the Indigenous people couldn't look after the land properly. And he was saying, no, 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 it's just that when you are gazetted as a national park, you've got even better protection. So, Wouldn't you think? Yes. Yeah. So, um, And funding to take care of it. Yes. So she accused him of succumbing to the environmental campaign ideology that Australia's first peoples are the enemies of nature. Ah, well. And he said, well, you've got me all wrong. Mm. I'm simply just saying we've got a better chance of protecting these things yeah, as part yeah. of the national park. She might have objected because if it's gazetted as a national park, mm. I, I don't really know, but I'm just guessing maybe the rights of local Indigenous people are not as um, great as mm. they would be if it was hand, I, handed back. I think that was what she was yeah, she wanted concerned about. Control of the land by mm. Indigenous people rather than state governments. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, another sort of racism style allegation mm-hmm. quick to draw and on a guy like that yeah, so, God. yeah so but just getting back to uh indigenous care and management of the land mm-hmm. 
and the bushfires we've had recently. Mm-hmm. Like people are bemoaning with good reason mm-hmm. the fires that we're having. Indeed, they've been pretty shocking. It was pretty standard practice for our Indigenous brothers and sisters set fire to, to, to landscape, set fire to stuff. Yeah, like extremely well known that yeah. that's what they did all the time, and. I'm not criticising them. No. It was a perfectly legitimate thing to do. For a hunter-gatherer, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you do talk about the Indigenous people's traditional sort of custodianship of the land, you do have to take into account a couple of things. One is, the, prior to their arrival uh, onto this landmass, there was a lot of large furry animals full there of protein. Were that disappeared at about the time that the Indigenous people appeared because mm. they didn't have time to adapt. No. So, obviously, they ate them all. Like, and that's pretty much... Well, at least they ate some of them and the rest of them didn't yeah. adapt well to or losing there was, numbers. there was then the changing sort of vegetation because, yeah, because the, the Indigenous fire. people were um, creating fires everywhere. Yes. And that was changing the vegetation Indeed. and creating grasslands that suited the smaller animals, yes. the kangaroos, yes. uh, rather than the larger animals. So, yes. uh, and where do big animals go when there's a fire raging all around them? Indeed. They get barbecued, don't yeah, they? Yeah, indeed. And really eucalypts were quite a small sort of part of our vegetation scene mm. upon their arrival and a short – in, in – in historical terms, a short time later, eucalypts everywhere because mm. they're fire resistant yeah. and, and did well in fire conditions. So, you know, we've mentioned it before, but it's sort of this is all as a lead up and intertwined with a bunch of other things. Mm. The and other, there seems to be this assumption that Indigenous people can do no environmental wrong. Yes. And, and this similar thing happened in New Zealand, of course, with our, um, our brothers and sisters across the ditch. Right. The Maori yeah. who, exter- well... From what I've read, I'm under the distinct impression that their hunting of that very large bird right. led to its extinction. Right, yep. Perfectly reasonable thing to do for a hunter-gatherer society. Indeed, yeah. yeah. But just don't go around afterwards saying what magnificent chickens. managers of the land they were. Mm. So the other thing is, we're going to talk about Dark Emu. Mm. And in Dark Emu, Bruce Pascoe paints a picture of cultivated fields stretching as far as the eye can see. Mm. Mind-boggling yeah. stuff, really. Yes. Considering what we presumed to know about how the lifestyle and the economy of our Indigenous brothers yes. and sisters. So if true, though, it again paints a picture of, of a quite substantial alteration of the landscape that maybe was not for the better, mm. if, if true. So, yeah, if true. Yeah. So we'll get to that. Um, Okay. Um, he's done very well out of that book, hasn't he, Bruce Pascoe? I mean, I, I'm not suggesting he's become wealthy, but it certainly received a lot of um, positive coverage right. in the media. Right. Hey, in the chat room, John just mentioned he's finished driving and he's here. So, John, towards the end of the podcast, if you're able to hang in there, we might get you to Skype in and tell us a story. So just let me know, John, if that's going to work mm. because John got involved with the uh, Labor Party with um, – Religious Discrimination Act and oh. trying to pass a motion through his local branch. So well done, John. That would be good, John. Um, if you're able to get onto Skype a little bit later, we'll definitely try and hook you up. Right. So back to our Indigenous episode number 213. And as I mentioned, please, if you have not listened to it, listen to it before listening to the rest of this one. Now, um, uh, we've got a listener, Bromwyn, 
who's terrific because Bronwyn disagrees with us on mm. stuff and actually says why specifically mm. she disagrees yeah. and gives cogent reasons. Yeah, and we're and, happy with that. And we asked for feedback and she gives it to us. Mm. So, so at the time, Bronwyn was the only person uh, who had anything to say about our Indigenous episode. Oh, Nobody else has popped up and said mm. anything specific about it. So Bronwyn's the only one we can um, sort of... Answer feedback from. Well. Yep. So. Hope you're listening this evening, Bronwyn. Are you there, Bronwyn? She sometimes is in the chat room, but not uh, so far. Right. So in her comments, uh, she said one of her first points was, you have said before and repeated it in this episode that you believe that people should receive special assistance or consideration due to disadvantage, not the colour of their skin. I put it to you that Indigenous people in Australia suffer disadvantage because of the colour of their skin. Even Indigenous people from urbanised and or middle class backgrounds will suffer some level of discrimination or mistreatment because they look Aboriginal to white people or because they assert their Indigenous status in some other way. So this is the sort of thing that's hard to measure. It is. This sort of... Subconscious or sort of cultural racism that not 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 overt, but sort of uh... it's sometimes quite overt. And look, I have heard stories from people um, who've experienced it, and it. I mean, it's it's definitely a bad thing and unpleasant, and mm. you know, there's no way you know we think it's a great thing at all. But um, uh, I I can't help feeling that having a so-called Racial Discrimination Commissioner for X number of years as we've had has really helped matters because it seemed to me the last one we had uh, went out of his way to find examples of racism and to persuade Australians that we are in fact very, very racist. Now it seemed to me a more constructive approach would be to take a more you know, positive approach and say you know, racism is bad, therefore you know, why can't we just look at each other as human beings? You know, we are, after all, one race, the human race. Mm. Um, can't we just sort of, you know, not sweeping it under the rug, as some people would probably accuse me of trying to do, but just encouraging people to ignore our superficial external differences because they mm. are very superficial when it comes down to it. Mm. But no, the, um, the Racial Discrimination Commissioner, it seemed to me, went out of his way to encourage people to, to find and get angry about racism everywhere. Mm. Mm. And it seems to me that's encouraged more people to see racism where probably it, it was not intended, you know, and mm. examples like... Um, see, Bronwyn would say it doesn't matter whether it's intended or not, it just happens and it's, and it's mm. there as a sort of a, uh, a constant well, feature that I, I think we couldn't really understand unless we're subject. I think it does matter. And I'll give you an example. Somebody close to me who's of mixed um, heritage, um, Asian and European, mm. uh, used to work in restaurants uh, when she was young. And she used to tell me that people were often saying to her, where are you from? And I, th mm. you know, I took that as just mere curiosity because she's a very attractive young woman. And uh, they, they would look at her and go, wow, you know, where are you from? And she would say, Australia. And they'd say, yeah, but where are you really from? And she mm. used to get very upset about that. Mm. And I can, I can understand, you know, being asked repeatedly, where are you really from? Mm. Might be a bit confronting or a bit unsettling or, you know, 
I, I hate to use the word offensive, but she didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But I used, I used to say to her, look, you know, maybe they're just curious. Maybe they just, you know, they look at you and you're a beautiful young woman mm-hmm. and they're just curious. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not an expression of racism so much as an expression of them genuinely wanting to know more about her. And the point was that they weren't going to treat her poorly because of her difference. No, yeah, I, I don't think so. Quite the opposite, in yes. fact. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but so, you know what? Yeah. I, she interp- I, I know she interpreted that as mm. racism. Mm. And it seems to me people are encouraged to interpret everything, uh, any kind of misunderstanding or suggestion of difference, to interpret it as racism, as, as negative racism. Mm. And I think that's a, an unfortunate um, direction to go in. Right. Well, let me just backtrack again to what Bronwyn said. She said, I'll put it to you that Indigenous people in Australia suffer disadvantage because of the colour of their skin. Even Indigenous people from urbanised and or middle-class backgrounds will suffer some level of discrimination or mistreatment because they look Aboriginal to white people, mm. because they assert their Indigenous status. So... Marcia Langton, who I talked about before. Mm-hmm. Who is she? She's a leading academic and Indigenous spokesperson who's held the foundation chair of the Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne since February 2000. She's an anthropologist with a BA from the Australian National University and a PhD in human geography from mm. Macquarie Uni. Mm. And began her academic career in the Northern Territory University and she's made significant contribution to Indigenous Studies as a disciplined and to government and non-government policy and administration throughout her career. Who better qualified to give an opinion on this? And she says, Aboriginal people in big cities are not disadvantaged and handing out taxpayer funds to them is hurting those in desperate need. She says um, that um, she was prepared to stand up and say, yes, I am Indigenous, but I am not disadvantaged. Mm, Clearly. We have to get a bit tough and up to 50% of the Indigenous population could stand with me and say, I am Indigenous, but I am not disadvantaged, like people in the Northern Territory, she said, at the Gama Aboriginal Festival in Arnhem Land. Mm. She criticised the Territory Government, accusing it of spending vast amounts of Commonwealth money to tackle Aboriginal disadvantage, but instead used for white towns. Um, And she went on about a few different things. Uh, So she's kind of agreeing with the point I made, mm-hmm. I think. And, okay, sure there will be some disadvantage suffered by urban Indigenous people, but is it significant? Um, Marcia Langton's saying no. Uh, I'm saying that, like, lots of people suffer some sort of discrimination of some sort. So mm. short people, obese people, mm. non-Indigenous coloured people, Asian people, tattooed people, white people in Alice Springs, they're all discriminated against at some stage in their lives to some minor Mm. extent, but they just get on with it. Mm. Um, I'm just going to jump to another one here. Uh, There's a guy, George Yancey, who was a sociologist who is a black man. This is in the US. He's black and he's evangelical. (laughs) And he said, outside of academia, I faced more problems as, as a black man. But inside academia, I faced more problems as a Christian, and it's not even close, (laughs) said Yancey, the black sociologist who now teaches at the University of Northern Texas, um, Mm. saying that uh, basically lots of discrimination in the academic world because Because of of being an evangelical Christian 
more than being black. So that's an interesting spin mm. on it. Yep. Um, uh, right. So that's point one of what uh, Bronwyn said. Um, you've pointed out that I think earlier on before we started recording, a lot of the activists who are claiming to be discriminated against were not um, obviously black. So yeah. if you're being discriminated against, it would be because of A, you look black and somebody thinks you're a black person and yeah. treats you poorly because yeah. of it, or yeah. B, you're not you don't look black, but you've been growing you've grown up in a disadvantaged black community and have suffered an inherent sort of cultural holding back of your of your lifestyle yes. because of your cultural sort of socioeconomic condition imposed on you mm. by being a black person. Mm. Um, and some of these people have really had quite privileged upbringings, it seems. If, if you're white looking and you have had a middle to high socioeconomic upbringing, is it possible that to be disadvantaged? It is, is it possible? On the surface, it doesn't seem like it, does it? Mm. And the ones I'm thinking of, of course, is the usual... Well, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to say they, they don't look black, you know. But mm. that's, that's just what crosses my mind with some of them. Because the classic case of disadvantage is you look black, I'm treating you different, you're not getting that job, you're not getting that service, you're, not, you're missing out on something you would otherwise Look, get. I just, I just think it's very selective, very selective ancestry when you see somebody who looks as European as you and I on a panel show uh, complaining about the treatment of Indigenous people. I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't, they shouldn't speak about it, but they identify as Indigenous people, whereas mm. we can see it's plainly obvious from their, you know, their... The, their body shape and their, their looks, they, they, they have more European ancestry in, in many cases than Indigenous ancestry and yet they seem to be willing to completely discard their European ancestry in a sense mm. and completely identify as Indigenous. And you know what? Like, it puzzles me. Well, I, but it's puzzling but really we wouldn't care. Who cares if you want to do that? Like it really doesn't mm. matter mm. except when you then say but I'm disadvantaged and I want something because of it. And then we have to say, well, are you disadvantaged? Tell us how because yeah. you're not being disadvantaged walking down the street with people looking at you thinking you're different and giving you a hard time because mm. of it because they're not going to. So mm. show us what that disadvantage is. Now we're becoming sceptical. It's, yeah. it's sort of – so, yeah, we don't really care but if you're wanting to claim – some recompense for disadvantage, then we kind of need to know the story, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Mm. Look, I have, um, and you've probably heard stories of uh, Indigenous people walking into department stores and being followed around everywhere. And, mm. and you know, that's, that's nasty. And, yes. And, yes. you know, we'd, we, yes. we hate to think that happens and probably I'm sure it does. does. Yes. I'm sure it does. It does. Yeah. So that sort of overt racism is obviously disgraceful and, yeah. you know, don't yeah. like it at all. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? Probably somebody dressed really poorly with a bunch of really bad tattoos and a wife beater singlet would also in be a certain shop could also so, be yeah. receive the same treatment, perhaps. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Point two from Bolman. Um, 
Since the 1970s, public policy and program development in Australia has incorporated the principle that there are a number of minority groups in society who require special assistance because they are disadvantaged by social and cultural attitudes and for other reasons. These programs have focused on providing assistance with access to education, health and other essential services. Australians have, by and large, accepted this as a necessary part of living in a civilised society. An example of such a program is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. In responding to the question of whether Indigenous programs result in unfair advantage, I would ask you to try substituting the names of other so-called minorities for the Indigenous minority. Does special assistance unfairly advantage non-English speaking people, the disabled or women? I'd be careful about that last one, guys. So what she's saying is we were saying the problem with giving a, a, a blank check to a racial group mm. is that some people in the racial group don't need the blank check mm. and that we want people to be identified as needy in order to yeah. qualify for the check. Absolutely. Roman's saying, well, we've got a host of other programs and could you say the same about that? She spoke about assistance programs for non-English speakers, for the disabled and for women. So I simply say to Bronwyn, well, with those groups, we test them. We ask, can you read? If not, then we will provide you with assistance. Mm. Uh, Are you disabled? Okay. Um, How much and in what way? Mm. Our assistance will depend on your specific circumstances. Mm. In relation to women, I'm not sure what programs Roman is referring to, but we might say, have you given birth? Okay, here's some maternity leave. Have you raised children? Here's some return to work assistance program. Are you a single mother? We don't just give it to people because you are a woman. We normally ask. Just like the age pension is means tested, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you don't don't get the pension just for being old. You get it for being old and for needing it. So I think those programs kind of prove the point that we are saying. Mm. Um, Bromland says that empathising with the constant everyday casual racism would not be easy and maybe not possible, and that's true, Bromland. Um, but then casual racism will not be solved by implementing things like the Uluru Statement. We exacerbate the problem mm. if we divide people. I think so, so too. Um, um, she said about the stuff about the special advisory body to Parliament, but really didn't say a lot more than what Professor Twomey had said, so I think we dealt with that. Mm. And um, I gave the refugee analogy because I said that, imagine if we said to refugees, well, we were here first, you've come along second, Mm. you're not going to qualify for some special advisory body until your descendants have been here three generations and you've intermarried with a local. Mm. People would say, yeah, well, it's outrageous. Mm. Bronwyn says, I don't get it. But if you don't, I think it's pretty obvious, the, the analogy. So, mm. I, you know, ideally we want our lawmakers to make laws on the basis that they might one day see, be subject to them. So if there was some sort of crazy alien spaceship that was able just to rearrange people on Earth mm. and you didn't know where you were going to end up, mm-hmm. And there's a half chance I was going to end up as an Indigenous person. Yeah. I'd be more than happy with the, with the, the sort of proposals you and I make mm-hmm. as opposed to the ones that are currently in place. Yeah. So yeah. that's one way of looking at it. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, analogy. Yeah. So Roman and others have also 
uh, often referred to Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe as a book we should read. Mm. And this book is famous for describing um, agricultural fields that were planted and tended mm. by Indigenous people. Yeah, the central yeah. thesis is that our mm. in, Indigenous people were not hunter-gatherers so much as... Uh, or at least some of them weren't. Well, mm. at least some of them weren't. And mm. he's saying that, you know, that it's a myth that they were all hunter-gatherers and that, in fact, some of them were agri- agriculturalists. And I think he even makes the claim that they were the, the world's earliest agriculturalists. Right. So, um, so I'm going to play... So he spoke at a TED Talk and I'm going to play some of his TED Talk and... This goes for a little bit. It's going to be potentially four to five minutes. If you don't listen to it all, you can fast forward four to five minutes if you're listening to the replay. If you're in the live chat, you're going to have to sit through it. But, <laughs> but um, this is important to get our heads around because mm. he makes statements which I'm going to say are wrong. Mm. So let's be very clear about what he has said. Here we go. Yep. In 2014, I wrote a book, Dark Emu, which exploded the myth that Aboriginal people were beer hunters and gatherers and did nothing with the land. I wrote the book because I found it hard to convince Australians that Aboriginal people were farming. Using colonial journals, the sources Australians hold to be true, I was able to form a radically different view of Australian history. Aboriginal people were farming. There's no other conclusion to draw. Colonial explorer Sir Thomas Mitchell rode through nine miles of stooped grain. He wrote about seeing massive fields of Murnong tubers in Western Victoria. Lieutenant Gray, the first European explorer into many parts of Western Australia, was halted by yam fields that stretched to the horizon. Many explorers saw great harvests of grain in the very dead heart of Australia. Did you know that the hillsides of Melbourne were terraced for yam production by local Aboriginal people? In fact, there was such abundance of staple foods that Aboriginal people were able to preserve, store and trade vast quantities. But none of this information appears in any Australian book of history. Is this absence deliberate? I believe Australia is ready to discuss the ancient agricultural economy. Let's look at what the explorers reported of the Aboriginal agricultural landscape and see if you can remember any priest, parent or professor mentioning it. Were we the world's first agriculturalists? I was having trouble convincing academics at some of Australia's best universities of this farming tradition. After a meeting where I was chastised for misrepresenting Australian history, I realised I would have to use sources which all Australians respected. So on the way home, I went to the first second-hand bookshop I could find and in the back room, I found a copy of Mitchell's Journeys into Tropical Australia. As soon as I read that he had ridden through nine miles of stooped grain, I knew I would never have to apologise 
for this argument again. Mitchell's fellow explorers describe it as looking exactly like an English field of harvest, grain stooped for ripening. Stook. It's an interesting word never to appear in the Aboriginal history Australians are taught. Mitchell also saw yam fields stretching as far as he could see at Garryward in Western Victoria. In his journey, he'd extolled the beauty of these plains, but assumed that God had made them just so that he could discover them, not once thinking how peculiar it was for the best soil in the country to have almost no trees. This was not God's work, but the intensive management of Aboriginal people, a managed field of harvest. In his journal, the missionary George Augustus Robinson reported seeing women stretched across these same fields of horticulture in the process of harvesting tubers. Lieutenant Gray was blocked in his explorations of Western Australia by Yamfield stretching to the horizon, which were so deeply tilled, he couldn't walk across them. Tilled. There's another word you've never heard in any Australian classroom. Isaac Beatty, one of Melbourne's first European farmers, wrote that the hillsides of Melbourne had been terraced to increase the production of yams and that the tilth of the soil was so light you could run your fingers through them. E.M. Kerr noticed that as he brought the first vehicle into the plains south of Echuca, that his cartwheels turned up bushels of tubers. Once again, some of Australia's best soils were almost bereft of trees, the plains having been horticulturally altered to provide permanent harvests of tubers to feed the population. But unlike Mitchell's self-indulgent congratulations, Kerr was aware of who had produced this productivity and later recognised that it was his sheep that destroyed it. Till It paints a picture mm. that we're not familiar with. Mm. And in it he is... Uh, He's quoting an explorer, Thomas Livingston Mitchell, and I, um, I did. Uh, well, what I, well, first thing I did was I just googled criticism of dark emu, mm. and I came across a website called darkemuexposed.org, <laughs> and looking at it, uh, it basically went into some detail about how what was quoted in Dark Emu about what the explorer Thomas Livingston Mitchell said was completely wrong mm. and gave several sort of... It alleged to sort of quote sections from Mitchell's diaries and compare them with what Dark Emu said. And I thought to myself, this is a strange website, like darkemuexposed.org. It seemed like... It's sort of funny fonts. It kind of a, a little bit of an amateurish look about it, and it seemed like just a bit of a hate blog sort of thing. Mm. And I thought, and that's I? what people would assume it is. Indeed. And I thought to myself, I better check. I can't rely on this site because it just seems a little bit too rabid for me. Mm. That I can't, even though they're saying they're quoting the exact words out of the diaries. I better check. So you did. I did. Good on you. <laughs> 
a beautiful thing about the internet. Yeah. Could you imagine if this was around when we were at university, the internet? Like the yeah. ability mm. to just Google and say, mm. uh, the diaries of Thomas Livingston Mitchell in a PDF form, please. Mm. And up they come. I've got links to them, dear listener. Uh, there's, a, in fact, two. Journal of an Expedition into the Interior of Tropical Australia and three expeditions into the interior of Eastern Australia. They're in a PDF form. So you can do a word search on them. So, Paul, you can do a word search and look for the word stooped. Yes, I did. I looked it up because I didn't. Did you? I, wasn't, I was not familiar with the word. Right. In the, di- in the actual diaries of the, of the no, explorer? No, no, okay, just in up, a dictionary. Okay, and what do you find about stooped? Well, it's a, it's a bundle of uh, harvested um, grass or grain. Typically hay. Yep. Yeah, mm. that is tied up and left in the field to dry out. Mm. So Indeed. that the grain can then be harvested. Yes. Yeah. So with um, explorer Thomas Livingston Mitchell's diaries in PDF, one of them's like 500 pages, the other one was several hundred. Word search, guess what? The word stooped does not appear. In his diary? No. At all? Nowhere. Oh. And So Pasco is uh, embroidering is, it, on, to, uh, on top of Mitchell's journal. Indeed. Doesn't use the word at all anywhere. Oh, in well, that's book. interesting. It is. So, because he seems to imply that Mitchell saw, you know, masses of stooped grain uh, yes. all over the fields. Yes. So, um, so, um, so Pasco seems to quote uh, the wrong um, journal. So, uh, Pasco appears to incorrectly cite this as being from Journal of an Expedition into the Interior of Tropical Australia, when in fact it seems closer to a passage that appears in three expeditions into the interior of Eastern Australia. Mm -hmm. Different document. Check both of them. Neither of them has stooped in it. So the reference to the sort of thing that was happening is definitely in the second one, not in the one quoted by um, Pasco. So, Mm -hmm. you know, minor error that he's... Pick the wrong one, but you know, might have been significant error considering the extent of his claims. Indeed, so um, so when you actually go to the section in um, Mitchell's diary, uh, page ninety of the nineteen sixty nine reprint, I'll quote what it, he actually wrote, and it says. The Narran was full of water everywhere, and with this abundance of water, there was also plenty of most excellent grass. The panicum lower venode of Dr. Lindley seemed to predominate, a grass whereof the seed, coolie, is made by the natives into a kind of paste or bread. Dry heaps of this grass that had been pulled expressly for the purpose of gathering the seed lay along our path for many miles. I counted nine miles along the river in which we rode through this grass, only reaching to our saddle girths. And the same grass seemed to grow back from the river at least as far as the eye could reach through a very open forest. I'd never seen such rich natural, rich natural pasturage in any other part of New South Wales. Mm. Does that paint an entirely different scene Completely to different. the one that Bruce Pascoe paints? He's describing riding through naturally growing grass. grass. He's not riding through fields of tilled uh, grain or anything. In, indeed. It's just naturally occurring grass that the natives have gathered clumps of yeah. and at different points have just 
dropped Would clumps. Drop those clumps yeah. to be gathered and beaten and the grain um, in a hunter-gatherer style. Indeed, recovered. as they do. And in fact, they could have sort of, as they walked along a path or along a riverbank, yep. from time to time or even regularly pulled out clumps of grass. Mm. But that's a, that's a kind of a trail of clumps of grass, not acres and acres of clumps of grass. In, indeed, yes. And Whereas Pascoe seems to imply that this guy was riding through fields of cultivated grass. Indeed. And as the writers of the blog say, um, if Mitchell had seen any sign of Aboriginal agriculture such as tilling the land, sowing seeds, cultivating, weeding or irrigating, it's most likely he would have recorded Wouldn't it. Wouldn't you think? Instead, he just recorded that he saw grass pulled out and piled in heaps of to dry. That's all. Um, they, on the website, they go on to say how much manpower would be required given their poor tools in order to tend such And that's fields the key, isn't it? That they didn't, mm. as far as any of the early reports uh, go, mm. they didn't have any tool resembling a plough mm. or something that you could use to cultivate the, the soil on a mass scale. Mm. So I've got a link to a video which you've seen yes. of uh, an Aboriginal group, which is really three wives, I think. Yeah, it was maybe a, group a couple of, of kids. group of women and yeah. some kids. Yes. We didn't see any men in the video. But that no. that's, looks like central Australia to me, doesn't it, to yeah. you? Yeah. It's pretty dry and um, flat-looking country. Yeah. Um, it's hard. Well, actually, according to this website, um, as a final piece of real evidence, rather than just relying on Mr Pascoe's interpretation of a few Eurocentric farming words in an explorer's journal, we have located a film clip of a family group of Aboriginal women gathering wild grass seeds in the central Australian region mm. of Mr Pascoe's Aboriginal grain belt. It shows the seed grasses growing to a height of saddle girths along a river in a typical scene as described by Mitchell. Um, we invite the reader to watch this wonderful film clip and immerse themselves in this 50,000-year-old scene of Aboriginal hunter-gatherers at work. Yes. We believe it is highly disrespectful of Mr Pascoe towards these women to portray them as soil-tilling farmers, which is mm. clearly something they are not. It's, they are not, it's no. Click on the link, dear listener, and have a look. We've talked about it before. Yeah. One of the fascinating, thing, what to me, fascinating things to me was the quality of the teeth of, of these women. Was beautiful just teeth. Extraordinary. I noticed that yes. as well. yes. Yeah. So, uh, and you can just see it's tussocks can, of natural grass that they're just pulling out and Some and other time I'll give from. you an anecdote about right. the teeth of Indigenous people because right. I, I bought a book by mm. an American dentist who travelled the world in the 1930s, I think. Right. Because he was curious about why Americans had such shit-ass teeth. So he, he was, you know, he's an affluent guy, so he closed, mm. closed up his clinic, I assume, mm. went travelling around the world. And he specifically looked at the diet and the relationship of diet and lifestyle to the condition of teeth. And even not only Indigenous people, he found Swiss people in um, Swiss mountain valleys who had perfect teeth as well, mm. but they didn't have access to uh, things like sugar. Mm. But Indigenous people right around the world had the most wonderful teeth. And he took photos too. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, yeah. that's a... Yeah. Caitlin's just joined in the chat room. Caitlin, we've just described how uh, Bruce Pascoe's book uh, really misrepresents, it would seem, mm. uh, and look, the, Pascoe, the diaries of, of Mitchell the Explorer. Can I just say, Pascoe mm. seems to be saying 
that all these early chroniclers of um, of indigenous life among the uh, you know in those early European settlers, he's saying that basically they omitted a lot of information because I think you'd agree with me that if they'd seen it, just as you said, if they'd seen anything like agriculture, they would surely have reported it. But the crux of his TED talk was. In order to convince people, I had to find stuff that people would trust, which was the diaries of the early explorers. Yes. So I walked into a bookshop. I found Thomas's, uh, not Thomas, what is it? Um, Mitchell. Mitchell's diary. Yeah. And there I found these words, voila, from the mouths of white people. Clearly that was then the case. So he's saying that in order to prove his thesis, he had to find proof from Western uh, accounts and but that's it, given that it? example. So this is just like you and I have still not read Dark Emia, but here's no. the problem. Yeah. When I see something like that, then I'm really skeptical about reading other things because he might say that Explorer ABC or DEF said XYZ, yeah. and they might have said something quite different. Oh, I see. Yeah, he's without, misinterpreting the it, data. It, it's, in a sense. it's the sort of book now that if you had to read, you would you would need to have some sort of critique of it by somebody yeah. who's taken the time to look at the source material and decide does it actually stack up. Mm. It's a bit like reading the Bible. If you were to read the Bible, you'd, you'd go, "Well, oh, holy smokes, I'm, I'm down on my hands and knees and I'm praising the Lord," but then when you read critiques of it by other people saying, well, actually, that's not true and here's all these things you need to take into account mm. before you accept that, mm. then you go, well, okay. You wouldn't say to somebody now, go and read the Bible and work it out for yourself. You'd mm. say you also need to read other things that are critical of the Bible yeah. and work out They'd give it some context. Uh, what you think, where you think the truth might mm. lie. So um, but, that's probably... But doesn't it surprise you that, you know, he's, he's accusing virtually you know, all the early chroniclers of mm. omitting huge amounts of information about the indige Indigenous people, mm. you know, like trying to deliberately misrepresent them mm. as pure hunter-gatherers, whereas, mm. in fact, Pascoe is saying, no, at least some of them were farmers. Mm. But no, none of the early reports describe them as farmers. Yes. So the other thing about this was... You know, it also described a scene where all the trees have been removed, fields of grain. But these are the wonderful um, custodians of the land who have looked after it so well. It's, it's, the two don't go together. This is the, this is the, the other thing. So yeah. Anyway, there we go. That's Dark Emu and, and really treat with care what is said in there based on his interpretation of Mitchell's diaries, mm. you'd have to say oh, I, the picture you paint is not one that I would have got <sighs> having read the diary. To me, the, the critical factor is the absence of any kind of tools that could mm. have been used to till large areas of soil. Yeah. Although Pasco does claim to have found one tool. Um, it's a... Was it a stone? Or I, I, I just don't recall now. I, I did mm. see it in the book. Mm. But there was one tool that he claims could have been used for tilling the soil. But when you look at it, it's really, really hard to imagine it could have been used uh, to, to till really, really 
large areas of land. You know, you might have tilled a, a backyard garden with it and it would have probably taken you all day, but to till the acres and acres of land that he's claiming were tilled, mm. it's just where are the tools, you know, how was it done? And it would have, inc- you know, required, and the point made in that uh, website you pointed me to was that even for people with tools, you know, early European agriculturalists, it was very backbreaking work tilling mm. the soil to grow fields of grain. Very, very backbreaking work, which required intensive labour, which we saw worked in East Asia, for example, and you know, in China, Vietnam, Japan, Korea. You know, where whole communities were employed to till the soil because it was labour intensive and backbreaking and need a lot of people. Mm. And we know the populations of Indigenous people, we're pretty sure, mm. they were pretty sparse populations, weren't they? Mm. They weren't exactly, uh, you know, densely populated in mm. areas, were they? Yeah. Anyway, so, so if anyone's reading Dark Emu, uh, check the references. If there's a footnote there referring to a reference then find the original source yeah. and read it and see if it actually does say that. Yeah. And look at the tools because mm. I know there are photos of the mm. tools in the book that Pasco claims were used. Mm. Right. Uh, still on Indigenous issues, the University of New South Wales. Um, the Australian. So it's always important to know the sources of these things. One of your favourite papers. Mm-hmm. Recently reported that the University of New South Wales is advising its staff to avoid teaching students about the arrival of Australian Indigenous people onto the Australian continent. <laughs> so naturally, it's advising staff not to describe Australia as having been discovered in 1788. Yeah, well, that's but, kind of fair enough. But, yep, exactly. Fair enough. Um But the guidelines occasionally wander into the domain of science. In particular, university staff are explicitly advised to avoid making reference to the fact that Aboriginal people have lived in Australia for 40,000 years. Um, Instead, they're advised to date the Aboriginal presence in Australia to the beginning of the dreamings because such language reflects the beliefs of many Indigenous Australians that they have always been in Australia yes. from the beginning of time That's right. and came from the land. They didn't migrate here. They were always here. The document warns that, quote, 40,000 years puts a limit on the occupation of Australia and thus tends to mm. lend support to migration theories and anthropological assumptions. Well, dear. Many Indigenous Australians see this sort of measurement and quantifying as inappropriate, um, end quote, such guidelines approved by the University of New South Wales Dean of Science are in direct conflict with the scientific consensus about the origins of Aboriginal Australians. Thoughts, twelfth man, other than oh, it's censorship, isn't it? It's mm. it's it's saying, you know, let's let's support their mythology more than science, mm. isn't it? You would have thought a university is about telling people what objective we know. reality, wouldn't yes. you think? Yeah, and yeah. if there's a dispute to give both sides of a version. But there is no dispute about the origins of Indigenous people onto this uh, country. Dear listener, I've just started reading now. Listener, um, uh, can you see that in the camera? You probably can't because it's flaring. Mm. Everyone is African. Uh, One of our patrons from Sydney recommended it to me. How Science Explodes a Myth of Race and talks about tracing... Uh, how mankind left Africa through DNA and how 
incredibly exact and specific they can be about mm. how groups of people moved and divided into mm. subsets and then moved on further and divided into other Indeed. subsets and incredibly specific. Even and within Africa. Mm. I mean, they, they can map the migration of humans through Africa even mm. before and after they mm. migrated after Africa. Yes. So uh, there is no doubt that uh, Indigenous people in Australia originated, like everybody else... In Africa. In Africa, <laughs> via... Um, via uh, different, you know, the yeah. different routes, but they sure. got here yeah. and uh, mixed with Neanderthals along the way and with Denisovans along the way and and that's how they got here. So it's, they, um, it's beyond dispute. Migrants just like the rest of us. Yeah. They just got here a little bit sooner. Mm. Fun facts about DNA. Um, the differences between us is 0.1 of 1% is our, the differences in DNA between people. we as a species, we're incredibly homogenous mm. in our DNA mm. and chimpanzees have greater variety than we do. Seriously? Yes. It's interesting. So even though they're from a, a mm. smaller locality. So the other thing is if you're looking for variety of DNA, that would be found in the original uh, African population. Mm. Uh, and in fact, there's less variety as you... Um, look at people in the rest of the world. And yeah, here's, here's isn't the that reason. interesting? Yeah. So um, mankind evolved about 200,000 years ago mm. and and I think left a, a portion of them left uh, through the sort of Arabian sort of peninsula mm. there um, at one point. Mm. You're talking so, about Homo sapiens. Yes, Homo you? sapiens, yes. Rather than mankind. Yes, thank you. Because there were, you know, obviously, as we know, there were several... Uh, branches of humankind, many of which ended in a dead end and Indeed. went extinct. Indeed. So there was about 140,000 years where Homo sapiens got to develop a, uh, different types of DNA sort of variants occurred. Mm. So out of that large population at that time, 60,000 years ago, mm. a small subset crossed over and then expanded the rest of the world mm. into the rest of the world. Mm. So... Think of it like this. If you had a, a really big um, bucket of marbles that had all sorts of exotic, interesting, differently coloured marbles spread throughout the bucket, and if you just got a, like a cup and dipped into the bucket and then used that bucket, um, if you looked at the differences and the, um, the amount of discrepancy it would be much less in your cup of marbles mm. compared to the large bucket because you've you just got less. So that's effectively what happened was mm. you had a small subset oh. escaped out of mm. Africa, populated the rest so of the, the world. So the bucket stayed so in Africa and indeed, the cup migrated out, so, out of Africa. So there's greater variety of mm. DNA still in Africa. Mm. So, And Tony in the chat room says, we're all descended from a single mitochondrial female ancestor. That's correct, yeah. A single? So, yes, yes, and the same for a male as well. So they're able to say these things with certainty. Mm. So there was a mitochondrial Eve and... If you go back far And enough. there was a mitochondrial Adam who would have been um, uh, 10,000 years after the Eve or something like that. Mm. So they're able to, to do that. So um, very exact in what they can calculate. So 
Uh, University of New South Wales is really letting people down if they're not explaining. What is a much more fascinating story? Well, Isn't it? Or, thing to know yeah. than just a simple, oh, well, we're always here and we mm. you know, popped out of the earth some Dreamtime story or yeah. something. It's so yeah. much more fascinating, the yeah. actual truth. It is. And what a disservice for a university to, to whitewash. It's a disgrace. I mean, mm. that a university would actually do that, you mm. know, to throw objective learning out the window mm. to placate political correct, you know, mm. right people. So... Um, now, in the chat room, we've got uh, John, I think it is, is uh, wanting to get to us on Skype. What you've got to do, mate, is go to the ironfistvelvetglove.com.au website and in the bottom left-hand corner, you will see links which include uh, Skype, um, a Skype link. Just click on it and that should fire up your Skype and you should be able to get onto us. If that doesn't work... Send me an email with your Skype ID and I'll Skype you. So um, so if you can do that, that would be good because he's got a good story to tell about um, the Labor Party branch that he <laughs> attended. So um, i better fire up a email if I'm going to try and track what's happened with – if he does send me an email. So – Okay, so on ironfistvelvetclub.com.au, bottom right-hand corner, there's a bunch of different sort of social media links. One of them is Skype. If you click on that, that should then have you calling us. So try that one and see how you go. Send me a message if it doesn't or send me your, uh, send me your phone number by email as well and I could just call you if that's... If that's the other option, mm. we can do that, which might even be easier. I could just call you. So shoot me an email and let's do it that way. It might even be easier. So, right, let's just keep going. Um, final thoughts on Indigenous matters. And this was looking at Canada, very similar to Australia in its experience with the native population mm. there. Mm. Similar incarceration, alcohol abuse, dysfunctional communities yeah. um, with a reasonably affluent white population, really not sure what to do next. Yeah, and uh, perhaps similar attempts to assimilate the Indigenous people into mainstream society, that, which turned out very badly for the, the people who were sort of taken from their families and put into institutions. Yeah. yeah. So over there... Um, there's an article, and this one comes from Quillette. So, mm. dear listener, I try and tell you the sources of things because mm. it does matter. Like I like Quillette. Yeah, I know you like Quillette, mm. but I will concede that – well, will you concede it's slightly right-wing? It seems I to be. don't know that I would concede that because Quillette's whole, you know, reason for being is to, to give a, a platform to people with – slightly unorthodox viewpoints in terms of unorthodox for the you know contemporary academy which tends to be quite left-leaning right okay so it's right of the left but you know is that really right wing you know anymore yeah I, i'm kind of putting it in the spiked sort of category i think spiked yeah. is an interesting you know because yeah. the people in spiked uh, well the the founding editors originally were marxists <laughs> right 
and I've read a bit more about some of them, and some of them are a little bit um, strange. Yeah, well, it's moved a long way since then. Sure has. Yeah. Okay, so in this article, this Canadian guy makes the point about communal ownership and how that's such a big problem for anyone wanting to get ahead in the native Indigenous population Mm -hmm. in these towns where everything is held under communal ownership Mm. and um, no person can or family can buy, sell, lease or mortgage their property in the normal manner that the rest of us take for granted. So this is a crushing effect on business formation Mm. and land improvement and and why housing stock on reserves degrades so Mm. quickly. Because there's no interest in taking care of it. Since no one owns their house in the normal way, there is little financial incentive to invest in any even basic upkeep. Mm-hmm. Um, and since residents can't mortgage their homes, no one has any basis for secured lending. Mm. So Indigenous people are no less industrious or ambitious than anyone else, but they often leave their reserve communities to find their fortune. So here we go. Let's just try. John, are you there? You asked me, you've, you're a member of the Labor Party and yep. you're in a little branch and you basically were looking to pass some sort of resolution about the religious discrimination bill at your local branch. Is that right? Tell, tell us the story. Um, yeah, I only joined up about 18 months ago because I wanted to talk to some people that might be on the same uh, or similar level that I could actually have conversations with other than my... Uh, most of my neighbours who are just um, oh, right-wing dickheads anyway. So, <laughs> um, um, But I've, I found it interesting because I've, I've been able to go through and, and take from what you gave back to me and also some other material I found from within the party floating around. So there's a fair bit of opposition for, that, for this motion within the party, I know. Not my motion, but for the religious freedom Meaning you think that within the Labor Party branch that they're against the religious discrimination bill. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, I had my local federal, state and council member there. um, And they all supported me, like, backed my motion and voted for it. So, And there's about, I don't know, 20 of us there and everyone voted for it. So, Right. So it went went through unopposed. Um, I got to... I'm now a member of the local federal um, committee. Um, I got a, uh, I got a little bit of resistance there for it, but more for the the. I mean, you saw the the motion I was putting up, didn't you? Yes, uh, I I can't remember it exactly, but it was pretty much yeah. just saying the sorts of things you'd expect to say that were against the the bill, as it was unnecessary and it was. Providing privilege to religious groups as opposed to protection—is that from memory something? Long, it was kind of yeah. long-standard lines like that. Yeah, it was it was a little bit mixed up. I, I think I've, I need to learn to, to how to put these motions together a bit better. So I got a bit of resistance because it was a little bit all over the place. Right. Uh, so what I got through for the federal committee was to push through to the opposition spokesman on such matters, whether or not where the party stands on it. So. Um, I'm waiting to hit. Trouble is, it's Christmas now, so everybody's more interested in piss ups than anything else. So <laughs> right. it's going to be. It's going to be. It's, uh, I probably won't get much through until um, uh, January, I think. Right. Um, so, 
Um, but within the federal meeting, there was about 20 people there from all the different branches on, yeah. well, I mean, I'm about halfway down the New South Wales coast. There you go. Better right. say that. Yep. Um, uh, but I'm mostly supportive, even religious people. I mean, I think I told you they're my local Senate member, federal, um, would be a bit resistant, I thought. She wasn't there, but a few of her supporters were, and they seemed to be pretty supportive of where I was going as well. So um, a friend of mine within the branch is going to rewrite my motion, and we're going to put it forward again and see if we can push that through. Because I basically just said half the things you say, which is, you know, it's just a crock of shit, basically. Yes. yep. <laughs> so um, I, I, I was surprised. I, I thought I'd get a lot more resistance, especially my branch president was saying that I'd cop a lot of resistance at the higher committee, but I didn't seem to get that. Right, so, right. Um, the, my federal lower house member, she said that she talked to a lot of fewer parliamentarians in the lower house with her, and a lot of them were just calling it a... Um, Discrimination bill, right? Nothing, nothing more, nothing less. So, right. So these, okay. So these were federal Labor members were were uh, were saying that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I think I think there's a lot of federal Labor members that are for it. I mean, there's a lot of religious nutters everywhere. So, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think I, it was mentioned to me that it would probably go through if it actually made the he- uh, federal Parliament in the lower house. It would probably be a uh, conscience vote, which surprised me. Right. I don't know why it would be a conscience vote. Oh, who knows? Who knows how these things play out mm. with factions and, and there could be all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with common sense but have all mm-hmm. sorts of reasons to do with power and power plays. And getting um, elected. Mm, mm. seems to me the Labor oh, Party is more interested in getting elected than going with principle. <laughs> yeah. yeah I've been pushing in the meetings that I've been going to about because it's come through at the meetings that they really are frightened of the narrative that they lost the election on the religious grounds, and mm. I keep pumping back at them as like, well, it was never mentioned in the election, so mm. yep. how can you say that? But then I was, I heard then in the last meeting that there was a lot of um, uh, underhanded stuff that really make the media, if you know what I mean, like religious churches going around. Yep. In players groups putting a lot of stuff up that mm-hmm. that, that got out there. So, um, mm. but I, I I just kind of keep saying at the meetings that it's a, a rich, powerful minority, basically. Yeah. Yes. I, I sort of felt myself straight after the election that religion hadn't played a big part, but I don't know. We're getting inundated with a lot of media that said it did. So I'm I'm starting to be convinced, but. I, I sort of don't know where I lie on that one, but I just do know that at some point you've got to have some principle and say, well, uh, okay, we've got to soften the blow for religious people and we've got to say it in a, in a respectful way, much more respectful than, say, I can, that I'm capable of mm-hmm. and maybe you as well, John, by the sounds of it. But somebody has to say it in a respectful way to say, look, we're not stopping you from practising your religion, but mm-hmm. uh, there's a limit here. Um, so are you suggesting, John, that uh, within religious communities around the country, you know, people are being guided as to how they should vote? And if, if the local, you know, pastor or priest decides that the Labor Party has gone, you know, too far away from religion, then they might be advising their parishioners not to vote for the Labor Party. Is that what you're saying? Um, I would think definitely. I, yeah. <clears throat> I got a situation. I was doing how to vote cards in my local um, 
polling booth at the federal election and the local church group had organised about 15 of their church com- mm. can, uh, group to come and do out-of-vote cards. So yeah. I knew where they all stood. Um, and they were directly for the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, do, you, um, do you know what church group that was? What denomination? No, I didn't see. I, I had a, oh. I, I had a couple of conversations with a couple of them, but they were very um, uh, passengers. Is that a right way of saying it? Right. They didn't seem to be. They didn't seem to be high up on the thinking okay. level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were just warm uh, bodies handing out pamphlets because they'd been told to. Yeah, because yeah, I was told to. Yeah, they thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Um, and the other one, my federal local member told me that the next day she was actually having the, uh, I think it was a Catholic priest uh, and a Pentecostal and another one, you know, like heads of our local area, showing up on a, mm. demanding a meeting with her, strongly talking about the, this is what they wanted to talk about. Right. Okay. Uh, yep. So she was... She 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 gave me the impression though that like the way she said it was she was she was brought up a a, a Christian but that's not quite where she was now so yeah but I yep. think she was trying to cover her bases a bit yep so I'm I'm interested in your experience as as a member of the Labor Party and attending meetings so I gather you've only joined eighteen months ago is that what you said um yeah about eighteen months ago yeah right and it was to get some conversation about politics that you weren't getting elsewhere and well a are you getting that conversation in the meetings do they actually talk about issues and things like you hoped they might do um yeah they do actually i've I've found it quite i found it quite good the best part i found is that i don't agree with everybody right but we can talk about things you know what i mean we can argue it out and it's 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 fairly structured um, you know, they put motions up and, and, like, we had a good discussion about why we lost the election and, and that that went on really well, you know. We had different points of view on it and everybody got to have their say and no uh, fists were thrown, <laughs> right. so it was good. Yep. So about – and how often are the meetings? Once a month. Okay. And about 20 people turn up? Yeah, yeah. So it's just, I, I was surprised how many branches there are in my area of – so um, I think each branch roughly has that amount. Sadly that they're all older than me and I'm 50. So. I was going to ask, is the demographic just angry old people? or is it? <laughs> um, there, there is a lot of that. Um, our branch president and is younger than me by about um, 15 years, I would imagine, and, mm. um, and the secretary, she's younger than me by about 10 years, I would imagine. Okay. Um, but, but other than that, everybody else is um, uh, retirees trying to figure out how to get transport to get there. Right, okay. So. And 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 does the actual um, – so the local, state and federal representatives, how often would they be at a meeting? Um, from what I found, about every uh, quarterly, I would say, okay. at a guess. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. So, um, and, and the federal one is actually in power. Like you've you've got a federal labour person in your district. Is that what you're saying? It actually, yeah, my, is, my is, branch sort of covers two areas. So where I go, um, the um, the labour uh, lower house federally, yep, and lower house state and local councillor um, are in my branch. But then I go to FEC for um, uh, a lower. 
electorate for federal. So Okay. But so every three months so. you could talk to a person who's actually a member of parliament and who can have the ear of Anthony Albanese if you've got a good idea in theory. Um, yeah, yeah, and I had a good conversation with my local member after my vote got up and um, and we had a lot in common. We chatted for about, I don't know, 20 minutes after that. So Right. Um, and very approachable and, and keen to talk. So That's good. That was good. That's yeah. good. It's encouraging, isn't it? It is encouraging because I've been telling people they should mm. – Join a party and try and get active. So, um, um, so. and that surprised me too. I, I, I know over the years the um, the major parties don't like a lot of members because they can't control them. But I've, I've I've found through my local branch and also the next level up committee that um, that they're screaming for members. Right. They want they want more. Wouldn't you think they would be wanting more members in terms of giving them added legitimacy, saying, see, you know, we have all these thousands and thousands of members, so we truly represent the Australian people? Yeah. Wouldn't you think? Just And also just to have manpower at election time. Well, there's that too, yeah. So, mm. so um, the call on you to help out, is it, uh, well, other than elections and handing out pamphlets at that time, is there... Is there a strong call on you to be involved in other ways besides being in the meeting and having a chat? Um, yeah, they, they had another committee they started up um, uh, trying to sell um, uh, to do something about global warming mm-hmm. and how to figure out how to push it, you know, how to sell it to the to the populace. Um, they wanted me to get on that, but I, I, I work of a night, so it's pretty hard to hard to get to these things. Right. Um, there's another one that I'm going to be on an email with soon that they're putting a few areas together to have a couple of meetings with more people getting in the one, you know what I mean? So instead of just talking to the people you put, talk to every month, we're going to yep. talk to the next um, areas over. Right. You know what I mean? So yep. we're going to get together so it's more people having a good chat about mm. different things. So. Right. Have you swayed any of them onto the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast? <laughs> have you put out the word? Uh, uh, I have. <laughs> I, I, with, I, I, my local president is uh, is probably is, is very left. In fact, I've heard another comment of him. Oh, you don't want to be that far left, but I don't think he's far enough. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. All right, we'll keep spreading uh, the word, so that's good. So yeah, yeah. So I'll push you out there. I've, I've told you uh, actually since Cameron put me on to you guys, I because um, the first time I heard you, Trevor, was when you got on Cameron's right uh, yep. podcast. So yep. and yes, yes, I was in tears when you kept pushing the um, soundboard. Right. Yeah. No, we had a lot of fun with that. Right. On yeah. So dear list for those who aren't aware, I was a guest on Cam Riley's podcast, The Bullshit Filter, and we did a little. Well, two episodes on Boris Johnson and mm. as well as being funny for us because it was a lot of in-jokes, um, we actually really nailed Boris Johnson. Like I reckon we actually really gave a good account of who that guy is and mm. everything that's happened since has pretty much lined up with with the sort of picture of the man that we painted at the time, I think. So it was a fun thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you'll have to tell him that you managed to Skype in and be recorded live and all the rest of it and that he needs to up his game, Indeed. John. So. Well, yeah, I found actually I found to, to make a comment there, Trevor. That um, uh, I really love Ray, but yeah. you gave it to Cameron a bit more. Right, gave it back to him, and also mm. when he came on this podcast, he you guys gave it back to him a bit more. And I thought mm. Cameron performed better. 
Yes. Having some resistance. Yeah. So. Well, it's important to have a contrarian voice. So, yeah, I've said to Cam openly, well, his problem is that Ray does agree with him all the time. And, but I actually get um, sort of criticism via emails and things on this podcast where people um, oh, find the 12th man too contrarian, for example. And I say, you're kidding. Like, it's perfect because we need a contrarian voice. Mm. You need a foil that you can bounce off. Mm. And when somebody stops and says, hang on a minute, I don't agree with you, you then have to sharpen what you're saying and really come up with mm. a, a much better argument. So mm. it is important to try and get a contrarian voice. Yeah. Um, but we still... And in reality, yeah. we probably agree more than we disagree. Of course we, we do, yeah. yeah. And again, people criticise us because we don't have enough alternative voices, but it's not easy to get somebody truly right-wing to come in and Truly right-wing. They don't have us. to be right-wing. Yeah. They just have to disagree on something. Yes, yeah, yeah indeed. So, um, so, yeah, no, it is... Well, that's one of the things I like about a podcast is that we do... You know, obviously the best ones are when we get into arguments about mm. China or Venezuela mm. or other key topics like that where it can progress over several mm. episodes where we're, where we're disagreeing. So, yeah. so Can I put mm. a contrary up about Korea? Did you see my message before about that? Uh, no, but go ahead. When you guys were talking about the Korean conflict, mm. I was sort of in the middle of where you guys were about civil war, not civil war. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was a civil war, but I don't think it was a civil war because the two major powers were heavily involved. Mm. If they hadn't have been, you know, if Russia hadn't have supported the North from the get-go, I don't think they would have attacked. Yeah. Well, maybe they, maybe they would have. But, well, they, but they were emboldened, weren't they, by the supply of all those weapons that the Russians gave them. Mm. Well, especially once the war got going and it was, you know, mm. after it was gone for months and even years, like, mm. were the locals even involved? It was just mm. the Chinese and the Americans shooting at each Indeed. other, wasn't it? Mm. Yep. Fair enough. And, you know, I tend to agree with you to some extent on that. So, again, it was kind of like <laughs> being a devil's advocate and maintaining a position. But And it shows how hard it is to really mm. simplify things because things are usually complex rather than simple, aren't they? Especially that sort of major conflict. Yes, there's a number of factors at play mm. quite often. True. Mm. Yep, yep. I, def- I defy anybody to find a country that's been interfered with by a major power and they've come out better off. Indeed. Uh, let's think of one. Japan? A country that's, well... I think Japan's Japan, a pretty good could, example. You could. What about, what about that as an example, John? Japan. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think of that either. Because uh, also with Japan, it was a, it was an extremely patriarchal society. I mm. mean, it still is. Still is quite but patriarchal. But a lot of things got changed. Mm. I remember listening to a podcast on Late Night Live where one of the interpreters working for the US was a woman mm-hmm. and she was managed as an interpreter to get a lot done to change a lot of the inheritance laws and other things. Mm. That, uh, the only thing about um, Japan, though, is mm. that um, they were occupied by a major power after a major war, whereas yes. other countries like, you know, the Koreas and uh, what's another good, you know, several um, or all of the South American countries, they weren't in a major war being occupied, were they? They just mm. got interfered with. Yeah, yeah but uh, true. And, you know, ultimately you could say Germany was a success story after being interfered with, <laughs> but brought a lot of that on themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Very good. Okay. Well, that's a good picture you've painted of 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 a Labor Party. From your point of view, you'd never been a member of a political party before or gone to meetings as such until 18 months ago? No, no. I've been oh. interested in a long time. I try and talk politics all the time to people. I'm very yes. interested, but mm, yep. usually I wind up into arguments with people. So mm, yeah, I was, um, I, was, I was interested to have a look in and see what it was about. So I'm, I'm going to stick around for a while, I think. Yeah. Why did you choose the Labor Party, if I may ask? Um, because... Um, I don't think the Labor Party, I agree with you guys, the Labor Party is certainly not as far left as I think they need to be. But then I don't think they can be too far left because they're, um, they need, you know, the majority's in the centre somewhere. Yes. So that's why I chose the Labor Party because they, they've got a realistic um, possibility of getting into government. Mm-hmm. So if I'm part of that, then at least I can have my little say in which direction they're going in. I think that's Trevor's but, argument too, isn't it? Yeah, mine was not to join a minor party, for mm. example. You're wasting your time. Yeah. 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 Even though their policies might overall be better, you're, mm. you'd be better off in a party that's actually got a that chance has, of getting yeah. into power and okay. working working from within yeah. as you're well, I thought uh, the, doing. I thought the Democrats and, and maybe even the Greens were an, an option at one stage, but, but they just seem to, once they get into some sort of position of power or control of power, they don't seem to be able to adapt to the bigger picture, if you know what I mean, like to, mm. to keep their policy going. Mm. Especially the Greens with the, what is it, the um, the carbon tax originally, if they had it just voted for, was it Johnny Howard's one? No, it was Julia had, Gillard. This is the this thing is that Scott always yeah. bangs on about, is that mm. right, I think? Um, yeah. Wasn't they, it Julia Gillard that had the oh, I don't carbon know. tax or was it I Rudd? I, I, I can't remember. It I know might have been Rudd, actually. Going, but, mm. Yeah. But the Greens effectively threw it out the window, didn't they, where it, it could have gotten up mm. in some form? Well, yeah, get, get something up. They don't seem to be able to negotiate. They just mm. seem to say, my way or the highway, and mm. then, well, All or nothing. the highway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're driving a lot in New South Wales at the, at the moment, correct? Um, yeah, right. I drive heavy vehicles for yeah. a major company, yeah. the you, big orange ones. And any um, experiences with the bushfires of, of note? Um, no, I'm mainly local. Um, right. Me and my wife uh, do a small pet transport as well where we get um, out west of New South Wales, but we haven't been for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I woke up this morning here. The major fire just north of Sydney is only about um, 10 k's west of us here. Oh. So when we got up this morning, I couldn't even oh, – I was up by – nine this morning and you couldn't even see the um, house across the street Wow! for the wow. smoke. Mm. Mm. Even in uh, downtown Sydney, the smoke was pretty incredible this morning. Yeah, it's, it's quite odd. That the way the topography is around here, um, nor, like the Blue Mountains comes around Sydney. Mm-hmm. It's like a big bowl. Mm-hmm. So fires to the northwest of Sydney are effectively in the Blue Mountains sort of thing or in the mountains. So, but it's all very close to Sydney. It's like from the Harbour Bridge, the fire would only be 50 k's, you know, as a crow flies. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Sydney is sort of surrounded by uh, lots and lots of wild forest, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, definitely. All right, John. Well, that's a good story. Um, Good luck with how that motion proceeds. Let us know if you Mm. get in the ear of the member and actually something happens as a result or you get any interesting feedback, stay in touch and um, yep. 
And good on you for Skyping in. That worked at the end of the day. I think I mucked it up by answering my phone instead of doing it the other way before. I think you did everything perfectly right, so that's good. And good on you for joining a political party and getting involved, I say. If anybody else does it, let us know. Um, Mm. Tony in the chat room said his local LNP meeting near him broke into a fist fight in the chicken shop. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Uh, As they met in the lead-up to the election. (laughs) We we haven't got that far, but I've been waiting for a good argument with somebody, and I haven't had a really good argument yet, so. Right, very good. Right. I got got close the first time I mentioned this um, motion I wanted to put up. There was a... uh, an older man next to me, I think that he was a regular church goer. He was quite affronted right. that, um, that that he told me that um, uh, non-religious people are more likely to uh, persecute religious people. Oh, yeah. Really? Right. <laughs> yeah. He didn't like disagreeing with him on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, they love being persecuted. All right. Well, that's good, John. Thank you for, for Skyping in. Keep in touch if anything interesting happens. And uh, I'm declaring that a success. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks for having okay, me. Okay. Bye. Bye. See ya. Well, there we go. That was uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that was good. Let me just uh, transition out of that, back to that screen. Okay. So the technology worked again. Yeah. Eventually, I well looked it up the first time. You're becoming so a master. Was, yeah, that was good. Mm. So, and isn't it great to have people mm-hmm. who who listen to the podcast who are actually mm. really getting involved in politics mm. on a personal level? I, I really would like to see more people joining political parties of of whatever stripe. You know, just get yes. involved and you know thrash out the ideas with each other. Mm, indeed, yeah. So, Rather than just sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. And tell us about it. So and it's good to have it. feedback and um, conversations with you, dear listener. Mm. So um, it keeps it fresh for us and, yeah. and fun. So, well, uh, I want to thank the patrons. So let me quickly thank, well, let's see. We're coming up to the end of 2019, not too far away, mm. 12th man. Uh, let's do these by years. Way back in 2016, Sean and Janelle. They were the only patrons. Mm. In 2017, we had Craig, John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Allison, and Steve. By the way, Landon has sent us a voicemail, but we'll wait for Scott next okay. week for that one. Sorry, how long's the podcast been going now? Uh, a bit over four, and it was first of July, four and a bit years ago. So, okay, four yeah. and a bit. And how long since I've become a regular? Because I it I, seems I, like three years ago. It couldn't. It's we couldn't not have been that doing long, it. is it? Is it three? I, yeah, we would only have been, wow. I reckon, you weren't that regular for the first somebody 60, asked 70, me, maybe. And I thought, how long has it been? A couple of years? At least a couple. Yeah. yeah at least. Yeah. We should look it up. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it, mm. I have to say. Uh, in 2018, we had uh, Tony, Caitlin, Jimmy, Spud, that was Kane, Bromman, Matt J, Robbie, Rod, Palais, Maddickman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, uh, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Peter and Captain Doomsday. And this year we've had Wheat Watcher, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, Professor Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn, Craig, Matthew, Alexander, Paul, Tom, Terra, Camille, Kim, Donnie Darko, Clinton and Gavin and the non-patrons, Dean, Ken, Was, The Beneficiary, Mr. Anderson, Corinne, Matman, David, Beverly and Anne. Had a few interesting sort of emails in the last few weeks, a bit of a mixed bag, some people complaining mm. that we were, uh, didn't like some of our episodes, but we were talking over the top of each other, committing logical fallacies, um, 
was accused me of a straw man and he was very specific about the instant that he's claiming. And when I see was, I'll explain why it's not a straw man. Some people have sent criticism, which was very general. And if you're going to criticise, be specific about what we actually said that mm. you specifically reckon was the problem rather mm. than generalisations. Yeah, and then we can go back then we can and actually deal reconsider with it. it. Yes. But so if you have a criticism, please make it very specific where we said mm. this or we said that and that was you disagree with it mm. for whatever reason. And if you think we're doing a marvellous job, then send us some feedback to Tell help us bolster us up because <laughs> some people say the opposite, so it's nice to have our egos stroked a little bit. If you yeah. do that, that would be good. Indeed. Um, right. Well, 12th man, next week I think Scott will be back. Okay. We look forward to it. Yeah. yeah. So thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. Signing off. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. See ya. Now a matter of great importance has been brought to my attention. I speak, of course, of the generous contributions made by the patrons of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. These fine men and women have sacrificed so much for their countrymen. Never before in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. To those of you who are not yet patrons, I say this. Give generously of yourself. Give until you can honestly say, I have nothing left to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. <clears throat> Let me see. What is the time? Ah, 10 a.m. Now, where is my whiskey and cigars? <laughs> well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do 
maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.